that prayer, I, I, as he was just uh, saying just before I come, speaking of the most unlikeliest of people, and I had to smile to myself because <laughs> you have no idea in many ways how true that prayer is, I am sure, for uh, many of us, but in terms of me and what the Lord gives me the privilege of doing, <laughs> you have no idea. New Wine in Your Skin was the title that you've seen in the bulletin, that you saw maybe in the BP Blast, and I know some people looked at that BP Blast, they said, new wine in, in your skin, in, in, in Mark chapter 3? Wait a minute, that's that's Mark chapter 2. That was, that was one of those, those illustrations or parables last week that Jesus gives. So we're, 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 we're building on that. We're taking that truth and seeing how that reality of new wine and, and new wineskins, how that is lived out in those whom Jesus calls to himself to be with him and whom he chooses to send. I was thinking about wine and wineskins, and we just don't do wineskins. And so we easily can miss, if you've, if you've maybe done a little micro winery, home winemaking, maybe you, you, you catch the analogy and what's going on there. But for most of us, wineskins wine and how that works and why old wineskins not stretching, now that doesn't work, we don't have an a example of that. And I was wondering, how could I illustrate that when I opened my desk drawer, and I found some, not old wineskins, but old balloons. It's kind of like old air skins, okay? But they also stretch, and they expand, and yet they reach a point when they don't expand anymore. And sometimes when they've gotten old, and the rubber is not the same as it once was, they are old balloons, and they don't work the same at all. So let's try that. I have no idea what's going to happen. That was going to happen. The, the, um, that, that balloon should have gotten like this, but it's an old balloon. It's an old air skin. And it can't contain that air anymore. And a, a new, an old wine skin with new wine would kind of be like that. Just a whole lot more messier. So that's one of the reasons we didn't do that. The, the um, facilities folks asked me not to. But... but as we think about that new wine, new wine skins, that change, we're going to see in this chapter, there's some resistance to change. That things don't necessarily go the way that we expect them to go. Um, and not everybody's okay with that. Following where you go, I'll go. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to pause and I want to read the, the um, rest of the chapter, the parts that we did not read, leading up to the calling of the, of the twelve. I wanted to read that in particular, that we understood why Jesus calls to be with him and to send uh, as we were praying for those that he is sending. But let's back up to verse 12 and we'll read through from there. Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. Let's pause there. Put that map up of, the, of these areas so you get a sense of this is from all around, from the north in Phoenicia all the way to the, to the south and to the east of, of Jerusalem as well. From all around these regions, Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem and Edomia, from beyond the Jordan to the east, and from Tyre and Sidon, Phoenicia in the north, 
When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he's told his disciples to have a boat ready. To have a boat ready near the shore. Have a boat ready as a way of escape. I think we've got a boat. There's a boat. It's near the shore. They're ready to escape. Now imagine 12 people in that little boat. That's, that's a typical fishing boat size. And imagine 12 or 13 people crowded into that boat. There's no room for anybody else. And, and uh, so Jesus is ready to, to be able to make a quick getaway from the crowd because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For it healed so many that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Can you, can you imagine the disciples? Social distance! Probably not. That wasn't in the vernacular at the time. And yet the crowd is pressing, crushing. And look at the contra, contrast. And whenever... The unclean spirits saw him. They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So the crowd is pressing in upon him. And we think of the crowd. Look at all these people who are believing and following Jesus. That's not the crowd. The crowd is hearing something is happening here. There are benefits to be gained. At some days, if you show up on the right day, there's even free lunch. But people are getting healed. Things are happening. Miracles are to be seen. This is drawing a crowd, but not for the right reasons. This is like a paparazzi crowd. This is a I gotta get a selfie with this guy crowd. That's the kind of pressing in. Pressing in to use Jesus for their benefit, whatever that benefit might be. And Jesus is ready to have a way of escape from them. Contrasting the crowd, pressing in, crushing him with the demon, demonic spirits who are falling down prostrate before him. Pressing versus prostate. Prostrate. That's, that's quite a difference, isn't it? That, that they, um, they, 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 they bow down in worship where the crowd whom we think are excited followers are not. They're pressing in. And so as we move ahead of the, uh, the, the, the passage that we read, verses 13 through 19, then to verse 20. Then he went home, after going to the mountain, after calling these, these twelve, he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. The crowd is pressing in. The crowd is in the way. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, to restrain him. The family went out to take charge, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem also had an answer. They were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out these demons. And they, he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter the strong man's, Beelzebul's house, the prince of demons' house, and plunder his goods, deliver those whom he has taken captive, unless that one would first bind the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying, one stronger than the prince of demons has come. 
Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. We'll pause there. Let's think about all of these reactions and all of these groups that are brought before us here. There are the crowds. There are the influential or the elite, the scribes. So there's the curious crowds, there's the influential scribes, there's the connected family. And none of those are the ones whom Jesus is going to call to himself. We don't take our measure by the crowds. The crowd is pursuing its own agenda. The crowds are pressing in for their own advantage, whatever that might be. They want what they want from Jesus. Those who are most informed, they have decided as well. They've come up with an answer. The scribes are the doctors of Israel. They are the most educated. They are the ones who know the, the Old Testament backwards and forwards. Well, they all know it backwards, right? Hebrews read that way. Forwards as well and, and inside out, they are familiar. They, they, they have memorized the Bible like Heidi Gray has. They, they know this. They come up with an answer. Remember, the, it was the scribes who were so offended when Jesus declared, remember the man who was lowered by his four friends through the ceiling, they parted things out of the way, and they, they lower him down in order to get him to Jesus. They were going to do whatever they, they needed to do to get their friend to Jesus. And they lower him down before him, and the, the need is obvious. He's on his mat. He's crippled. He cannot get up. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. The scribes are scandalized. A miracle they could take. But who is this that dares to forgive sin? Nobody can forgive sins except, except God alone. How dare he say such a thing? It's blasphemy. And so they've come to a conclusion because Jesus presses it then. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man, take up your pallet, your bed, your mat, take it up and walk. And he's healed instantly on the spot. The healing of his body is demonstrative of the forgiveness of his sins that Jesus has authority. And they're scandalized. But they've got to come up with an answer for that. So the answer they come up with is he does these things, even the casting out of demons. Jesus is obviously superior to these demonic spiritual forces that have been oppressing and captivating these people. And so their answer is this. Well, he cast out the demons by the authority of the prince of the demons. Jesus, he's, he's not empowered. This man is not being empowered by the spirit of the living God. No, this man is being empowered, they say, by the prince of demons, by Satan himself. What he is doing that is a demonstration of who he is as Messiah, bringing his new covenant kingdom, which is inaugurated by the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. He said, no, no, that's not what's happening here. We are not seeing the Spirit of God. We are seeing demonic spirit at work. We're seeing Satan himself using this man to advance his satanic agenda. They are calling Messiah the Antichrist. And they're calling the work of God through him, the work of the Holy Spirit upon him, they're calling that the work of demons instead. And that's going to lead us into this whole question, what is this blasphemy of the Spirit that Jesus warns them about? First of all, Jesus says, you know, that's a bunch of nonsense. That's what he says. He says, that's a bunch of nonsense. I mean, think about what you're saying. Let's take that a little farther. 
if, if, if I am casting out these demons by the power of the prince of demons, what that means then is that the, the spirit, powers of spiritual darkness are at war among themselves. That they are fighting against themselves, they're destroying one another, and their house is about to collapse. That can't be what's happening here. Instead, he warns them against rejecting the working, the obvious working of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit testifying who Jesus is and his saving work that he is the Messiah of God's kingdom inaugurating his new covenant. And that's witnessed by the working, by the power of God's Holy Spirit at work. The same Spirit that in his baptism comes down from heaven where God the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So this is all tied together. In, it's a matter of who is Jesus. That's the issue when it comes to blasphemy of the Spirit. Because you, some of you have tender hearts and, you, and you're made a little nervous by this. You're worried that could I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And if I were to mistakenly blaspheme the Holy Spirit, would that be then an unforgivable sin that there'd be no way that I could be saved? Well, let's do what Jesus does, does with the scribes. Let's take that down the trail a little bit. Let's say that the blaspheme of the Spirit is nothing more complicated than, than something, saying that something the Spirit is doing is not. For instance, let's take charismatic controversies. Let's take a very extreme charismatic controversy that you have seen or somebody has seen sometime and they say, you know, I don't think that's God working at all. I think, I think that might be a spiritual deception. That might be some other spirit at work creating a false miracle. So the Bible talks about false miracles and deceitful spirits. I think that might be what's happening there. Oh, but be careful. Because if it really is the Holy Spirit... And you mistakenly attribute it to a deceitful spirit instead, you would be blaspheming the Holy Spirit and you would, you, there's, you would lose your salvation. There's no way that you could be saved. That's what that would mean. So if you're ever wrong about anything concerning the Holy Spirit, you'd be blaspheming the Spirit and there's no way you could be saved. That's where that trail would lead. This doesn't make any sense. You'd be very careful to never say anything about the Holy Spirit again, right? That's not what it says. What is, what is talking about? What is, what is the, there's a historical moment here where Messiah has come. And the Holy Spirit is upon him. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the, to, to the captives, to, to heal the sick, to make the blind see, to declare the, the, the day of the Lord. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is a presentation of Messiah in the power of the Spirit, inaugurating the kingdom, demonstrating the marks of God's kingdom on earth where there will be no more sickness, there will be no cripple, there will be no blindness, there will be no demonic oppression. And they are saying that those indicators, those signs of who he is as Messiah demonstrating his kingdom, the Holy Spirit's witness to who Jesus is, is not true. In fact, that's not the Spirit. They've determined it must be Satan instead because that's their only legitimate means for them to reject Jesus, which is what they're doing. That's the issue here. Is Jesus, the Son of God, from heaven come to be our Savior or not? That's the issue, and they have said no. And to say no to that in that historic moment, 
There remains no other sacrifice for sins. That's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying in several of his warnings. That to reject Jesus as Savior and Messiah leaves you no other Savior. Why? Because there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one Savior. There's only one salvation. And if you reject Him, and in this moment He is being presented. John says it this way. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as receive him, to those he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on, that, that they have, he's come to them, he's presented himself in all the credentials of Messiah in that historic moment, and they have rejected him. Well, is there anything then for us in this blasphemy of the Spirit at all? If it's a, if it's a historic moment of rejecting Messiah when he comes, is there anything for us here? And I think there is. The same basic element still holds true. If you reject God's Son and Savior, Jesus, if you reject the Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus, there is no other salvation. You are guilty of eternal sin because there's no other way of removal. So the only unforgivable sin that there is is the sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony to you about Jesus. And so if you're concerned as a Christian and a believer in Jesus that you might commit the unforgivable sin, well, you can't because you are a believer in Jesus. You have believed and embraced the Spirit's testimony concerning Him. So so we don't take our measure from the crowd. We don't take our measure from those who have decided against Him, those scribes, the experts of their day, even as the experts of our day, who have answers that constantly change We don't even take our measure by those connected ones, the family, those who go into protective mode. What's Jesus' family or those close to him? What are they doing here? The crowds are pressing in so that Jesus can't even, in his disciples, they can't even eat. And the family's, we got to intervene. We got to have an intervention here. That's what we got to do. They are going nuts. I don't know if the Irwin family came to this conclusion at one point. Josh and Danielle are talking crazy talk. They're going to go where? Man, we got to gather them around and we got to have an intervention. We got to have a talk. We got we we to hold them back from this crazy thing about taking our little grandchildren and going overseas with them. They could go. Just leave the grandkids here, right? Something like that. Something like that happened along the way. And that's what's going on here with the, with the family. They're going into protective mode. Jesus doesn't realize the danger he's in. The authorities are arrayed against them. The crowds are not helpful. The crowds are fickle. The crowds are unpredictable. The crowds could turn on him. They're going to do that outside of Nazareth, right? They're going to try to throw him off the cliff. His his family is going in to protect him. Jesus is not in his right mind. Maybe he's been out in the hot Galilean sun for too long, all this teaching and preaching. we got to step in and and, and pull him out out of this. Even the family's good intentions can get in the way of God's calling. I remember when our daughter was going back to Zimbabwe and one of her siblings was asking me, well, he, they thought this was a kind of a strange idea and, he's, and asked me, what do you think about all this? Well, I said, well, I can't really say anything, can I? A, I I preach going where he sends you, following his leading. And B, um, her mama and I took 
three of our little ones off to some place called Swaziland that nobody even knew where that was, right? So what can I say about this that she is going other than that she's trusting the Lord and there's no better place to be than committing yourself and trusting him. Family isn't always the best indicator of God's leading as well. And instead of the crowds, instead of the scribes, instead of the family, those most connected, those most natural, Jesus chooses these 12. He went up to the mountain away from the crowds. Now, the mountain is significant. It says the mountain. It's like a mountain you should recognize if you were in Galilee. And if you were in Galilee at the northwest side where Capernaum and this area is, you would see this mountain. It is prominent above all the others around it. You can see it from the lake shore. Let's show a picture. This is Mount Arbel. I think this is that mountain. When, when Mark says the mountain, he's talking about significant mountains like this mountain, like Hermon, the Mount of Transfiguration, like the Mount of Olives, like the, the, where he he has the Olive Discourse, places where significant things happen, significant terms of, uh, uh, turns of events. This is the same mountain, it appears, that Jesus gathered his disciples after his resurrection. He called them to this mountain, back where it all started, back where he named them initially as those who would be his apostles, his sent ones. Now they have a wonderful view. If you were up on top of that mountain... There. If you were on top of that mountain, which is a silly place to sit, you could look down over Galilee. You look down over all the areas of Jesus' ministry. You look down at all the places where Jesus is going to send them. And it's there on that mountain that he calls these. And who does he call? He calls, out of these 12, there are four fishermen, there's, there's a despised Roman collaborator, there's a skeptic, there's a thief, there's a political radical, a fundamentalist. There's not a scholar or an executive among them. There is nobody to organize them and keep them on task. How is this ever going to work? I mean, you've got James and John called sons of thunder, Right? It's not a compliment. They're a little hot-headed. We think of we read the, the 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 Gospel of John, and we think John, what a sensitive, you know, easygoing, patient, patient, gentle man. Yeah, James and John—they're the ones that wanted to call fire down from heaven upon those Samaritans because they wouldn't welcome Jesus into their town. He was obviously going to Jerusalem, and they didn't like that. Peter, Peter's nicknamed the rock. We think of the rock. Peter must be a person of stability and steadfast faith, right? I don't know. You read the gospel, you think maybe, maybe Jesus has got a double entendre. Maybe there's a little bit of a sense of humor there. Maybe, maybe Peter's a little bit of a rock at times. A little hard-headed. Simon the zealot and Levi the tax collector. Can you imagine what these two talked about in the evenings around the campfire? Can you imagine opposite political spectrums for one who wanted to do the most radical of things to free the, 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 the Jewish people from Roman domination and the other who has sold himself into service of Rome as a tax collector bleeding his people? And here they are gathered together. What do they have in common? What does this group have in common? Nothing much except Jesus. I was told years ago by, by a friend, 
that although there's a lot of differences among the churches here and there and round and about, he said, you know, among believers, we have all of Jesus in common. And that's a lot of common ground. I don't need to remember that. We'll have our differences about this thing or that thing, but never let the other things and never let outside things, never let temporary things get in the way of the thing, which is our unity together in Jesus our Savior, that we carefully, jealously guard, protect, nurture, and look after the unity of the Spirit in this bond of peace in which Jesus has given us peace with one another and peace with our God through Him. He has joined the most unlikely together. He came to his own, his own did not receive him. But to those who did, he gave them the right, the privilege, the standing of being children of God. Ephesians chapter 1 expresses it this way. Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we will be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That he has, as he chose these 12, this is my point, as he chose them, just as all who have believed in him, he chose you. He chose you. Now, don't get all wrapped up around, but did he choose me or did I believe? And how, how, Don't worry about it. He chose you and you have believed in him. You must believe in him. You, you don't receive eternal life without believing in him. And yet it says he chose you. So just say, oh, okay, I believed in him. And he chose me. He chose you. To be his own. Out of all those clamoring crowds, he chose you. Well, has he chose you? How do you know if he's chose you? Does anybody have, you got vaccine cards, some of you. I haven't asked to see them. I won't. Uh, Do you have a he chose me card? Does anybody have one of those? A he chose me card. It's, I believe. God concerning his son, Jesus. I believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's my he chose me card. Why did he choose you? For what purpose? There wasn't anything in us that he saw. I'm really going to get something done with this guy. No. Why did he choose you? He chose you for two purposes. He chose you, it says here, we read it earlier, that they would be with him and that he might send them. God chose you to be with him. God chose you that he would send you. That's the purpose. That's, That's why he chose us, to be with him and to send. Think about it for a moment. God wants you to be with him. God desires relationship with you. He wants you to be restored into right relationship with him. That is precious to him. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the richness, the riches of his inheritance in us. Wow, we think about how much God is for us. We, We lose sight of how precious How much our God delights over you. 
that we sing to God, we forget that the Scripture says that He delights in song over you, that God rejoices over you in singing. You ever think about that? We sing to Him. But listen, listen, listen for heaven's song now and again. As your God, your Savior delights in you, He chose you to be reconciled, that we who are afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. He wants us near. What do you do with that? What do you do with that, that God wants relationship with you? How do you live that out? How does that look in terms, how does that change the way we, oh, I got this list. You know, I've got this list that I'm, I'm reading through. I've got to do, we have a discipleship group together, and we're all reading the same passages. We've got a list of passages we're reading, and we share about those. We, we, we debrief together about things the Lord is showing us there. But I could easily turn into a task list. I'm supposed to read these things because group is coming every week. We're going to get together. I've got to read those things, make sure I ticked off those, those passages. I'm really good at ticking off stuff off a task list. But God desires me to spend time in his word that I would know him, that I would be with him. God desires me to, to prayerfully spend time with him in the day, that, that I would be with him, that I would hear from his spirit, that he would hear from me. God delights to hear your prayer. How do we live in that? Are we walking with him? Are we following him? Following him is not simply obeying and doing the right stuff that we might gain credit that might get us a bigger house in heaven. We think about it in silly ways, right? Crowns or, or mansions or these kind of things. How many cities am I going to be in charge of? What squares do I need to fill to do that? Forget about it. I don't want a mansion over the hillside. I want a close chair in the family room. Think about eternity with our Lord that way, in relationship with Him. He desires us to be with Him, and we live in that already today. And yet He also would send us, purpose number two, He sent us, I mentioned, on mission. This mountain is the Great Commission mountain. This mountain is the the place from which He would send them. That he would send them. Yeah, they're going to go to those places, but they're also going to follow that trade highway that they can see from there. They're going to follow it out to the coast in Caesarea. And they're going to to sail off other places. They're They're going to go there further east where they can see on the road all the way off to Damascus, way out there on the plains beyond. And they're going to go there also. That they are not only going to be with him, but they are going to be sent by him. That's why he has called you. So that you would know and follow him by helping others to know and follow him. Now, I love saying it that way. Not, 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 not just because it sounds good. It does, it does work, right? No, our purpose is to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. But that was Jesus' purpose for his disciples. That they would know him and they would follow him by doing what he was doing. Which was declaring himself to others. Inviting others to follow him. And so the disciples join in that other helping others to know him and helping others to follow him. And we join in with those disciples by helping others to know him and helping others also to follow him. To go to people around us, to bring others into God's family, to be built up together in knowledge of our Lord, in knowing him. That he... he He called us to himself to be with him and to be sent by him. 
to know him in doing what he's doing, bringing others along with him. Let me, let me show you one more piece that to me was striking. At the very end of the chapter, verse 31, I saved this piece. It's, it's, it's another family. In between, uh, around the two, uh, the big issue, the blaspheming of the Spirit, there's these family episodes on either side. In verse 31, we pick up with the family again. And his mother and his brothers came, and they're standing outside, and they sent word to him and called him. Jesus, can you come out here? We need a word. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother, your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. And he answered them, and he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were seated around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Think about that. God has made you in faith in Jesus Christ. God has made you heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. Not only that, think about it in terms of brothers and sisters then of Jesus. Joint heirs with Jesus, right? Brothers and sisters of Jesus. Let's go one step further. I don't know if any of you are from a Roman Catholic background. Or maybe you have friends or family from a Roman Catholic background, and you know that in that religious tradition, one thing they are well known for is the exaltation of Mary, who was the earthly mother of Jesus, the exaltation of Mary above every other earthly human. In fact, exalting Mary to the point that we, we ought to pray to Mary because everybody knows that if you want something from the son, you should ask his mother, and the mother will make the son, you know, deliver the goods. But what does Jesus say here? Who are my mother and my brothers? These, these are my mother and my brothers, that whoever does the will of God, he is my mother or my brother and sister. A lot of times the Bible just deals with brothers or brethren, and you ladies just have to, you know, fall in there. Recognize it's inclusive and it's meant to include you too, but the Bible uses that because of the, of the tendency of the day. They use male language to be inclusive of men and women. But he's very specific here. Brothers and sisters and mother. Even the one that some would, would, would exalt out of due place. I don't know, if you're from a Roman Catholic background and you understand the dynamics of that, Jesus would call you as his closest, most important familial relationship. That's what he's saying here. Wow. That's how close. That's how tight. That's how in you now are as one who follows him, as one whom he sends. He sends us. That he might send them out to preach, that he might send them having authority over demonic spirits. What are we going to do with that? We're going to run out this afternoon and look for spirits to cast out? I don't think we need to, but know this. One of the guys in, my, in, a, in, our, in our Monday morning workshop did lay out this. You know, from what this says, we don't have to be fearful of demonic spirits. We can recognize there are principalities and powers that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But we don't have to fear those spiritual forces even when we can't see them. 
I remember encountering demonic opposition and demonic control over people when we were in India. That kind of thing isn't nearly as evident. I think it's much more, it's much more um, uh, common than we realize around us. We just give other names to it. But, but in India, it's out in the open. It is not hidden. You come face to face with it. And uh, I, re- I remember at the time being surprised at first, startled even, but not afraid. We come in the power of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and in His shed blood covering all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame, and in His authority we can command such a one to be cast out. And I remember continuing to wrestle in prayer for, for a couple at times, it seemed like hours, and yet... Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Paul put these two things together in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, Ephesians, I think, is all about spiritual warfare and how the Christian is fit to battle in the spiritual realm from chapter 1. Beginning in chapter 1 is a very important beginning, our standing in Christ and not in ourselves. But it culminates in chapter 6, certainly. And Paul Paul grabs hold of this in verse 17. He's talked about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. So put on the armor of God that you might be able to stand against the enemy. And then he, he continuing on to verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. See how he t- takes the Word and prayer and puts it together because that word is brought into spiritual battle. And he says, praying in these ways, in verse 19, catch this. He says, also praying for me that the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul says, and pray for me, pray for spiritual help, spiritual power for me as I speak words and have boldness to speak words concerning your gospel and the circumstances that I'm in. Opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in change that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul, in the midst of the opposition that he faces, he recognizes this is not just a political thing. This is not just a human-level thing with here's this Jewish evangelist and here are these Roman authorities and they're just not seeing eye to eye and maybe we can just have some dialogue and we can get all this together. No, this is a spiritual thing. The God of this age has blinded their eyes so that they cannot believe. This is a spiritual thing. So he says, pray for me. Pray that the blinder would be taken away in Jesus. Pray that I would have boldness, Paul, that I would have boldness to speak as I ought to speak. As one who has been called to be with him and to be sent by him. And on those terms, Paul's prayer is our prayer. And that's where I want to stop today. I want us to consider, what is, where is my circumstance? What is my need Where am I sent? To who? How must I pray? How can we pray for you that you would have boldness? Oh, you're no no bolder than Paul, right? I'm no braver than Paul, so certainly, would would you pray for me that I would have boldness to declare the mystery of the gospel as I ought to? 
Would you be willing to pray that for me? Anybody? Just one or two? Oh, thank you. Could we pray that for you? And I don't know who for you being sent to, but let's pray. That God would use us not only as those who would be with him, that's precious, but who would be sent by him, and that's privilege. Let's pray. Father, would you, in fact, send us? Lord, first of all, we dare not not ask again that there'd be somebody here that needs, to, needs first to be with you, needs first to be reconciled to God through believing in Jesus as Savior, in Him as the forgiveness of their guilt, their shame, their sin. And then, Father, from there, as we are with you, would you, in fact, send us? Lord, would you give us boldness and courage? Would you give us eyes to see that this is not personal with somebody? This is not merely a clash of personalities or perspectives, but there is spiritual opposition. There is spiritual blindness. And we cannot talk to people about our God except we have talked to our God for these people. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would intervene. That you would give, intervene in giving us words to say, giving us boldness and courage to say it, giving us the compassion and care to go, to come near someone. And Father, would you also work in them and call them to yourself and give us the joy, delight, the privilege of seeing you work and bringing eternal life to someone that I care about. Lord, do that across this room. And we will give you glory for new life in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, Amen.